0: Educating by sharing our From the Trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise. Balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home.
1: Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have uh, Mark Ferguson with me from the Revivalist website. So thank you for joining me today, Mark.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to be with you. Thank you. Um,
1: so tell me tell me about your background.
2: Yeah, well, I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, which is a small city on the edge of Appalachia. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood that I think defies a lot of expectations about the region. Uh, let's just start with the fact that it was urban, right? People tend to associate Appalachia with rural. Um, my Appalachian experience was decidedly urban it was a mixed race neighborhood um it was blue collar to low income i think that uh it wasn't necessarily the picture that a lot of people have of the region right so that's where i was raised um i you know was very fortunate um in that uh, a lot of teachers saw potential in me um a lot of people pushed me along the way um i was able to go to college and i was able to build a career did um-
1: was there like manufacturing is that what made it urban
2: what makes roanoke
1: urban specifically yeah was it was there manufacturing is that what like why there was an urban center there
2: yeah it uh, i was the train actually was what was the um impetus for roanoke's existence um as a city it was actually formed fairly late Uh, it was in the late 1800s okay and then it grew really really fast um so fast they started calling it magic city um within a decade, maybe. It was one of the biggest cities in Virginia. It went from non-existence to being one of the biggest cities. Um, but then by the 80s and definitely by the 90s, it saw a huge economic downturn. The railroad pulled out. Other big employers like banks pulled out. We have this gorgeous Tudor hotel in our downtown that shuttered. Um, it was a rough period for the for the city. And that was when I was coming of age. And, and I knew that if I wanted to build a career, I really Sadly, at that point, I had to leave. To leave yeah. Luckily, yeah. we've seen a revival around healthcare and our economy is doing much, much better. Um, and the city has become a tourism hub for um, outdoorsy folks. But uh, yeah, that was a rough period for Roanoke.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. I was, I've, uh, I've driven through through Virginia and I've gone to Williamsburg a couple of times, but I've not spent a lot of time in Virginia. Um, so, So what drew you into preservation
2: and history? Well, you know, I've always lived in old houses. I mean, even growing up, we were in an apartment building on the third floor with no air conditioning. It was hot as could be, but uh, we sweated like it was our jobs back then. But um, the building was from the, I'm guessing, 40s, probably mid 40s. Um, and then, you know, I lived in Boston for a long time, and you almost have to try to not live in a historic home <laughs> in Boston. Uh, and then, and then DC. And, you know, it's just, it's part of my, it's part of my DNA at this point. Yes. Yeah.
1: So so tell me about the Revivalist website.
2: Yeah. Well, while I was living in D.C., I was really looking for a way to stay connected to Appalachia. And I gravitated towards writing It's something that I had always wanted to pursue. So I started this very scrappy, very ugly little blog <laughs> called The Revivalist, fully expecting that it would only be like, my mom and some cousins who read it. Yeah. Uh, but then a the community started really sprouting up around the blog, um, and there were a lot more people interested in Appalachia and um, what I was writing about it than I expected. Yeah.
1: So, um, and when I was when I was on the site preparing for um, preparing for our, for our our conversation, I I uh, was noticing that it's not just structures; it's like culture is is that how you would describe it
2: absolutely and you know i i've joked that i you know have written about everything from you know uh, coal mines to dolly parton albums to um, classic appalachian recipes like it really spans the the gamut of appalachian identity and culture and geography in the region at large I, I, I always
1: am interested in, um, besides, um, structures, I'm always interested in the recipes. So I, I did <laughs> notice that.
0: <laughs> so so good
1: ones on
2: there. Yeah.
1: So, so tell me, tell me about your, um, your farmhouse
2: project. So there's a farm that was founded by, uh, my great great, great grandparents, um, Polly and Silas Deering. And I always like to say Polly's name first because I know in life her name was very rarely said first. Right, So I feel like I could honor honor her in some small way by actually putting her name at the front. Um, And it was uh, started sometime, we think around the 1850s. It was still in my family line. Uh, My grandfather was raised there. Up until the late 1950s Mm -hmm. um, when my great-grandfather was done. I mean, honestly, it was a really hard life. Like it was, it was a challenging way to live and he wanted off the farm. So he sold it off to a cousin. So it started down another family line and much to my surprise, I had the opportunity to buy it back, um, last year. And, uh, in December, my husband and I closed on the property and we now own 225, stunning acres oh my in, goodness that's a huge farm <laughs> it's really large like i and up to that point the most land i ever owned was the yard around this house which is 0. 0.15 acres oh my goodness right so we're still getting our heads around that we go out there and we're like this is half the size of monaco and it is <laughs> yeah. um, it's enormous um uh and we just feel really really fortunate to have been in the position where we could, could buy it at the time.
1: Yeah. And that's really, um, it's really unusual. And it's probably because it stayed within the family um, that it has not been subdivided and, you know, uh,
2: you know, parceled off. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the um, it it was inherited um, down that family line that had purchased it. Um, And they, you know, did not subdivide it. Um, They're actually still using it for grazing for cattle. Um, And that is correct. It's highly unusual. So, so you you've you've talked about what they're using the majority of the
1: land for but what is the what is the status of the structure.
2: Well, you know, there are a few structures. You've got outbuildings, various Mm -hmm. outbuildings, a silo with a tree growing through it, Um, which we're going to do something cool with eventually. Um, And then you have um, the main farmhouse, which started out as a one or two room structure. Uh, As I understand it, Polly and Silas, when they first moved there, really only had time to put together a lean-to. And according to family lore, they would have, starve to death if the neighbors hadn't have kept them alive the first winter that they were there. Um, After winter passed, they built this original core structure. A two-story addition was later added. um, And we have photos of that from the late 1800s, but it's since been torn down. It apparently really was in bad shape. So by the 1980s, it was gone. Um, So it was back to the smaller structure. uh, And that's what's there now. It's in pretty bad shape cosmetically, Mm -hmm. but it's sound. Um, it needs, you know, a a little bit of, um, foundation work. The roof will need to be replaced, but it's holding right now. Uh, the inside, um, we think that, um, area teens over the course of decades have have broken into it, vandalized it. Um, if you go on the revivalist, you'll see a post that shares interior photos. And, uh, there's a lot of Interesting graffiti <laughs> that's on the walls, but you know, all of that can be fixed.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's all cosmetic. Well, and and structurally, that's that's probably the most important because that would be your most expensive proposition.
2: Yeah. Exactly. The fact that it's structured, you know, it has log walls. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, this thick. Um, the outside has siding to protect the logs. The inside had plaster, which was of course a sign of wealth if right. you could afford to put plaster over your log walls. We plan on removing that plaster. So I'm sure my great, great, great grandparents will spin on their graves. Like what is wrong with this boy? Why, why, why doesn't he,
1: why does he want to expose
2: those logs? (laughs) Exactly. Those ugly logs that we've spent so much money covering up. Um, but so that's one of the two structures that I would say are really significant. Mm -hmm. The other, um, is basically a servant shack and was originally a slave shack. Right. Um, that has since collapsed. Um, it is just a little roof mm-hmm. laying on the, the ground. The wood is rotted away. Um, we have some, some photos of it. Um, and we know that um, at points as many as seven people were living in this tiny yeah. one room shack directly adjacent to a much larger, much nicer house. Yeah. Are you,
1: are you going to, um, are you wanting to reconstruct that or are you wanting to, uh, what, what do you have a plan for that?
2: Well, we're in conversations now um, with descendants of a woman who had been a slave on the mm-hmm. property. She stayed after emancipation. Her name was Adeline. Um, we know a fair amount about her life uh, because um, David Deering, one of her descendants, did some terrific research and has written a little mini genealogy of her. um, And uh, we're talking about a number of things, Um, whether we construct that, how we mark the graves um, Mm -hmm. of uh, Black and mixed race people who are buried there. They're unmarked. We're actually not even sure exactly where within the land they are. Mm -hmm. Um, We have some ideas because there's some some and divots, yeah. a casket-shaped, yep, and there's one stone. And when I say one stone, I mean just a rock, yes. not a finished stone yeah. um, that's supposed to be the marker. So we're talking about how to mark the graves, yeah. you know whether to rebuild the structure. According to uh, her grandchildren, they had told David Deering that she was actually Booker T. Washington's aunt. Oh. So we're starting to have conversations about, is there a possibility of doing DNA testing to yeah. confirm this really, really important relationship? Yeah, um, that, that would that, be. And it was just two generations off that we're saying this. Yeah. So, you know, it could be really significant.
1: Yeah, and and Booker T. Washington had children, so you could definitely do, uh, right. yeah. 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 So
2: there are descendants on that side. We've not reached out to them yet. Right, There's yeah. on that side. Um, so theoretically we, we could, do DNA testing to try and to try and figure that out.
1: Yeah, yeah that that's that's very interesting, and I I um I think that now right now the the trend that I see within preservation is to is to acknowledge all the history, and I think that that's important Absolutely. for everybody to to feel um to feel connected to it because it's, it is all of our history. It's it, we're all we were all interconnected from the beginning. Um, exactly. It wasn't.
2: Yeah, and I and I think you know to not just this farm, but, but any place to love it is to accept the complications and to recognize, no, I did not create those. Sure. None of us who are alive did, but we all inherited them. Um, and, and recognizing the full history, recognizing this farm wouldn't have really existed without slave labor, without people being held in captivity and forced to work. Um, I think is essential if we really want to talk about, um, and, and honor what, what is there.
1: Yeah, I I I really do agree with that. And and that's on a much smaller scale. I remember there was all kinds of um, outrage. And I and I've got to use that term, and I don't really believe it was real outrage when, when Michelle Obama made the comment that slaves built the White House, which is true. But you know, like people were like, Well, it says in the records that they fed them extra, I'm like, so they were still enslaved people. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. I, I, I commend you for, for tackling that, that hard part of history, but it needs to be, we need to hold that mirror up to ourselves. So I, I commend you for that.
2: And I'm, well, you know, and I'm heartened. I think we're, you know, as we're talking about preservation, um, I think that it's impossible to talk about just the structures without the historic context. Uh, and I see more and more um, institutions um, mm-hmm. and individuals having this, this uh, moment of reckoning with a past that, again, we didn't create, but we all inherited. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, that's, you know, white people, black people. Um, and I, you know, see Harvard actually is doing right. a lot right. of really amazing work right now um, to recognize how the university benefited from slavery. right, And um, they're being very public about that, which I think is commendable.
1: I, I agree with you the, um I, I, um, so part, I part-time I'm, I'm the part-time um, executive director for the countywide um, preservation um, advocacy group. And I, so I get to go into like lots of houses that I wouldn't usually get to go in for whatever reason. And I went into a house in Eastern Lancaster County that when I walked into the back room with the walk-in fireplace, and then they took me upstairs, which were like steep that you know not to code at all but almost like a ladder but they were stairs and i was in the sleeping area that had never been touched i'm like i've never seen an, an intact at one time were were slave quarters in in lancaster county and i was i was blown away i was like so excited that they hadn't touched it you know and and it's probably just because the, they don't even realize what they have because people don't associate slavery with the northern states but it was here
2: of Course, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that um, it is a, a bit of an aha moment for a lot mm-hmm. of people who live in the Northeast yeah. that um, not only you know were slaves present there, but there was a lot of profit that came yes, from slavery. Yes, yes, um, yes. You know, even as far north as Boston and the, oh yeah, know, the fashion right, that yeah. it is.
1: And even if um, it, even after slavery was being abol- abolished, they were still benefiting from the cotton and the textiles and and yeah.
2: Yeah. And interestingly, in, in the house I'm setting in, like I can go over the stair to the yeah. basement stairs right over there under my basement stairs. Um, there's a toilet. Yeah. And that toilet was for the help. Right. Because they had to go to the bathroom in the basement because, you know, white people did not want them using their restroom. Right. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, there's really um, y- you can't have a structure uh, of, of any age and not not start to, to reckon with that on some level. Right. Yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. So, so tell me about the two other historic properties that you
2: have you have restored. Yeah, well, one of them is the house that I'm in right now. So, uh, 1927 Foursquare um, in uh, Old Southwest, which is one neighborhood off of downtown. So we're in Roanoke's urban core, um, and it's it was a fantastic home. Um, I think you know the home of probably an upper middle class family originally. Like a lot of cities, um, 1960s, 70s, and 80s, people of means left. Right. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, the house only sold once we think uh, in the 1930s and the same family had it, but um, I think they got progressively less wealthy over right. the years. Yeah. By the middle of the 20th century, it was, as I understand it, being used as a boarding house for relatives. So all the second floor doors had numbers scrolled in them. You have locks in weird places. You had a kitchen on each of the three floors. Um, and then fast forward to when um, we bought it in 2018, uh, the house was falling apart. I mean, plaster I literally falling from the yeah. ceiling. Um, the back of the brick garage wall, you could kick it and it would move. Yep, that's not good. We're gonna them out front at this angle. You know, original knob and tube wiring. The floors has never been refinished. i mean, basically everything. Right. Uh, yeah. Needed to to be touched. Um, so we spent about a year and a half and did a full restoration of it. Um, and we're really happy with it. We we really love the way that it turned out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My my house is from a similar time period, and I, I, uh, I love it. And I've been reading about uh, urban renewal in in Lancaster and they were doing surveys in like the fifties about like the housing stock and, and um, there wasn't a lot being built. And that was pretty typical everywhere between the depression and, and world war II, just because all right. the resources and um, but like only a third of the houses in Lancaster city in the fifties had running water. And I'm like, my house would have been so fancy. <laughs> <laughs> By right, that measure alone, yeah, they were high on the hog, weren't they? Right. So it just—it's amazing to me because, but if you think about it, like all the building stock that was from earlier would have needed to be retrofitted, and so yeah, it just wasn't—you know—it wasn't something people were investing money into, and that's amazing to me, especially because my family, most of my family is from the West Coast, and you know they all had running water and plumbing because it—they were building the houses with it.
2: Yeah. yeah that that is an interesting measure of wealth um, right. that w- something that we all take for granted now right? oh, yes. every house in America should i'm sure there are a few outliers but I'd right. say 90 some percent have yeah. have running water yeah. um but it it wasn't a given back then
1: No it wasn't it wasn't it's pretty amazing to me um so as you've oh, oh you didn't tell me about the other you had two properties <laughs>
2: Right. So prior to this house, um, I had bought a house in Alexandria, Virginia, that dated to the '40s. It was a townhouse um, mm-hmm. in the Del Delray neighborhood, which is you know one neighborhood off of Old Town, the really old part. Um, this was a neighborhood built for um, rail workers that were working at Potomac Yard, which was the okay. largest rail yard on the East Coast at the time. Um, uh, it was not in as bad a shape as the house that I'm in now. Yeah. Um, but it hadn't been refreshed um, since the 80s. So uh, basically, everything that didn't run away got painted. Um, and we, you know, refinished the floors and um, redid our basement. And that was my toe in the water, really. Yes, um, yes. And But we did it all with an eye for restoration. And, mm-hmm. you know, we really, wanted to honor um what the house had been um uh, a great example uh it had steel casement windows originally yeah. those were gone and replaced with mm. bad white vinyl windows <laughs> so yeah. we replaced the bad white vinyl windows not with steel casement because wow they're right. so
1: expensive yeah still um, expensive. Yeah. Right.
2: yeah but what we did do we did wooden windows that were casement and mirrored um the pattern that was um in the original steel casement. So we could took it as close as we could. Right. Uh without going broke and having to sell our cars for windows. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> we have such nice windows though. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: Yeah. But well, that's um yeah I, I think starting small, kind of gradual paint, you know, paint and you know those those details and then kind of now you now you've worked your way up to you know 250 acres.
2: <laughs> yeah that was a that was a big unexpected leap. Nope. Yeah. Yep.
1: So well, um, as you've worked on, you know, um, kind of documenting Appalachian culture, but also, you know, preserving buildings. What trends and challenges do you see in preservation?
2: Well, I I think it's so place specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll use two places I know well: um, the neighborhood in Alexandria where we had the townhouse, um, Delray. It has no protections. Right. Um, you have a lot of um, Townhouses from that era and a lot of Sears houses uh, that were brought in the rails, that makes bungalows. Sense. Yeah. Really adorable. And people have built warts on the back of them. I and mean, they'll build these like horrid two and three-story structures yeah. that were designed with no eye for continuity or respecting the, the original building. Um, you know, you, you can just look at it and see that it's a design build shop that knows nothing about architecture coming in and doing this. Right. Um, and in that, so in that, in that community. need some preservation standards because they just don't exist by contrast uh in old southwest the neighborhood i'm in now uh it has very tight preservation standards um that i think personally are actually inhibiting um Mm -hmm. the health of the neighborhood the economic health of the neighborhood and keeping some structures dilapidated i know um at least one developer Tried to buy a building, he was told that each unit within the building, for an apartments, mm-hmm. had to be a certain square footage, um, and it, he needed economically to do smaller square footage than right. was allowed. So it can go either way. Yeah. Um, in the end, he walked away from that building. Um, it is still sitting around the corner, uh, just a needing, glass. yeah, needing somebody to do something with it. Right. Yeah. So I think that you, you know, and those standards made sense when they were put in place in the 1980s. Right you know, a 800 square foot apartment meant something that was going to be rough and right. and that, you know, wasn't going to actually like benefit the neighborhood. In Roanoke, you have beautiful 800 square foot lofts now that are really, really nice spaces. Right. And the guidelines haven't evolved to, to match the changes in the reality of, the, the community.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think that there is a move to smaller living spaces. Exactly. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily understand it myself just because I, I can't imagine living in that small of a space, but I've seen in Lancaster, a real t- trend towards efficiency apartments and higher end efficiency apartments. And though, yeah, I agree in, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that, efficiencies would be high end.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't have, I mean, as you know, sitting in this house, it's 3,500 square feet and thinking about the fact that it takes me 40 minutes to vacuum it. Right. um, (laughs) So some days a small, uh, smaller place sounds very attractive. And having lived in DC and Boston, you know that was just the economic reality. Yeah. Oh, so really have to be truly wealthy to afford anything approaching this size. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very true. I think those are good observations. Thanks. Thank you for sharing those. Was there anything that you wanted to share before we before we wrap up um, that you thought of while we were talking?
2: No, I mean, this okay. is terrific. I love what you guys are doing. Um, you know, I encourage folks to go check out The Revivalist. It's at therevivalist.info if they'd like to see more about the farm and, and watch its progress. Uh, we have some good content there already and, and we'll continue to add to it as this inv- adventure unfolds.
1: Okay. Very good. Well, and I'll make sure um, that we have the link to your your site on, on our webpage. So if somebody's listening and didn't have a chance to write it down, they can go find it and just click right through.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Okay.
1: Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation.
2: I really appreciated it. Thank you.
1: Thank you.